church history, and we're just about finished. We have a couple more weeks to finish up. Um, next week we'll be looking at the Baptists and the uh, beginning of missions, and then um, and then we'll finish up by looking at uh, the the history that leads up to our church. Hopefully that'll be helpful, and so you can see uh, the picture of how it, it got from the New Testament throughout the church throughout church history up to our church. Today we're going to look at the uh, the church in the changing world, particularly America. Um, Christ certainly rules over the world, and He gave us a responsibility to go and reach the world, and yet Christians have found that the world has been against them. And so if there is one theme that defines our class today, it would be the tension between the world's efforts to control or conquer the church and the church's attempt to redeem or to reach the world. Um, The church now here in, in the 1700s is for the first time in 1,500 years finding itself um, losing its favor with the culture and the government. And, um, and Christians are becoming more and more of outsiders to, uh, to the American culture. So let me pray. We'll begin and uh, ask God for our help as, as we uh, look at these things today. Father, we uh, thank You for this time of the year when we can reflect on the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for uh, His love for us and for the reason that He came to this earth to die for us, to live a perfect life. And we count ourselves blessed because of His sacrifice, not because of anything that we have done, but because of His uh, mercy upon us. And we pray that You'd help us to reflect on that and uh, specifically today as we reflect on the um, fundamentals that began our country and, and have uh, brought us to this place, help us to think about them rightly according to your word and, uh, and to be able to live in our country in a way that would be honoring to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin in America with what's called the Puritan Dilemma. The Puritans wanted to figure out how they could live uh, faithfully in a world without becoming corrupt by the world. And uh, sadly, what happens, as in many cases, over time, um, the Puritans began to to be corrupted by the world instead of instead of uh, changing the world. And that's what that that's indeed what happened after the Great Awakening in the 1760s. Uh, they they didn't have their vision as much in front of them as they used to, and they began to fade and and to be corrupted by the world. What had become of the Puritan dream of trying to change the world? Well, in one sense, the Puritans failed because um, they became friends of they they began to adopt the the Christian culture or the the non-Christian culture, I should say, until finally the Puritan movement ceased. Now, we do have a lot of great legacy from the Puritans. We talked about them a few weeks ago, and so we don't want to dismiss uh, what they did for us, but the movement as a whole uh, ceased by this time, by the 1760s. Perry Miller of Harvard describes the Puritan legacy this way, having failed to rivet the eyes of the world 
upon their city on a hill. They were trying to set themselves up as a city on a hill that people could see and, and look look upon and and um and they were they were left alone with America, he he says. So what I want to begin with is answering the question, did the founding of our country represent a failure of Christianity or a triumph? And the question that, that really is at the heart of that is is um is what's the relationship of Christianity to the the founding of America? And perhaps you've heard talk like this. I'm sure you have. If you turn on the news at all, you hear we need to get back to our Christian heritage. And so that's really what I'm trying to answer is, is did we have a Christian heritage originally? Was it founded upon Christian principles? And um, so we'll take a few moments to, to, to consider that. The... I want to begin by saying that the founding of America would be inconceivable without Christianity. In other words, uh, the way that that our country is run now, the way that it is set up, would be inconceivable if it were not for Christians. Let me just uh, explain to you how the the founding of our country happened. First, it was was based on three primary principles. The first is a Greco-Roman thought. We'll talk about what that means, and then an enlightenment, enlightenment rationalism, and then a biblical worldview. Those three things helped shape the minds of the early founding fathers and put us uh, where we are now. Now, this last factor is the one I want to focus on primarily, and that is the biblical worldview. What you're going to find in these early Christian fathers and, and early founding fathers, not all of them were Christian, but... Um, was at least five things that they understood about God. Okay, five principles. And I think I have them for you there. I think they're these first five on the front page on the bottom. First, their view of human nature. That is, they believed that, that man was fallen. They, they believed that man was sinful, that they have, a, they have a depraved heart. And so they recognized that there, there would possibly be, like there was in England, abuses of power because of the sinfulness of humans. And so they set up a system that had checks and balances, separation of power, right? The three, um, the, the three systems that we have. Uh, secondly, a strong sense of God's providence. They believed that God was providentially uh, in control of all things and, um, and that He guided and sustained their life. Thirdly, they believed in personal freedom. Um, they believed that each person had the right to personal freedom instead of uh, this idea that King George III, he's this tyrannical ruler and, and going to control everything that they do. They, they believed that each individual was made in the image of God and, um, and had, a right, had certain unalienable rights. Fourthly, morality. They... Uh, they believed that moral the morals were good, that it would be good for people to have religious freedom. Um, and then fifthly, and this is not necessarily a good one, they believed in covenant theology. Okay, We'll talk about this more in their next series of classes when we talk about the outworking of God's revelation. And um, covenant theology basically says that the promises that God made to the Jews, He also made to fill in the blank. Okay, you can in America there. So so they say, well, God has made this covenant with our country, and so He's going to have to operate with us in a certain way. 
And so based on that, they, they set up the, the, their system in, in a specific way. Let me just give you a few examples of how um, they, this played out in, in the early founding of our country. The most obvious example comes from Thomas Jefferson's confession in the Declaration of in- Independence, which says that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Okay, they, they show that, that um, ultimately everything that we have and, and everything that we can do comes from God, not from the government or from man. So ultimately it comes from God. So that's, that's a very good statement. Uh, perhaps you're not familiar with the early resolutions that the Continental Congress brought about in 1777. One of them was to set aside days for humiliation, fasting, and prayer. One of these resolutions uh, that was spread throughout the churches called on Americans to join the penitent confession of their manifold sins and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. In that statement, you have an awareness of sin that they had. That was one of the first things that we looked at, depravity. You also have a dependence upon God's providence that God is ultimately in control. You have a belief that there's a special relationship between God and America, which they got from their covenant theology. And and then lastly, they, they see that that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. So, um, so there are some redeeming qualities in the early founding fathers. Thirdly, there was a man that was set up as the first, congregation, uh, first con- congressional chaplain. His name was Jacob Duche. Jacob Duche was a pastor and um, an Anglican, Anglican priest um, that came over, and he was uh, leading a church in Philadelphia. They asked him to be the chaplain of the Congress. Uh, imagine that. 1774, he was the chaplain all the way till 1777. Now, he did, um, when the British came over to fight, Duche was trying to make peace, and so he wrote a letter to George Washington to tell him that we needed to, to uh, not fight against the British. Instead, we needed to make peace, and he was charged for high treason. And uh, before he was convicted and, uh, um, and uh, sentenced, he, he fled the country. That was uh, Jacob Duche, who was this first congressional chaplain. In um, 1776, uh, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were trying to figure out what to put on a national seal. And one of the options that came up between these two men was that they should put a picture of of God drowning the Pharaoh's armies um, just after the exodus there. And uh, part of the, the reason for that is to show God's power over, over human uh, forces, but also to show that God has uh, this special relationship with these new covenant people, as they would understand it. This covenant theology, again, shapes the way that they see how America was run. And so they, they felt like they would be the ones that would receive exodus if they would stick with the principles that were set out for them uh, in the Old Testament with the Jews. So with all that being said, um, there are three reasons why I would say that that America was not founded as a Christian nation. Three reasons, okay? And they're listed for you there on the, the second page, starting with natural theology. 
American founders used a natural theology rather than a revealed theology. Okay, natural theology refers to the truth about God and man that can be known through human reason and observation. And listen to this. They are apart from the Scriptures. The things that you can understand about God, man, and sin apart from the Scriptures. That's what natural theology is. And that was, that was uh, the underlying theology that they, they, they thought about, they used when they founded our country. Listen again to the, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-what? Self-evident. In other words, anyone can just look at the world and understand all of these Christian laws. Okay, They, they felt that they could understand God and His purposes apart from the Scriptures. And I say they, I don't say all of them. I don't mean all of them. I mean some of them, perhaps most of them. In fact, the second reason is that the, mo- the most prominent of the founding fathers uh, were not evangelical Christians. And they certainly wouldn't have been able to join a church like ours. Not, I'm not just saying because they weren't Baptists. But, but these, many of these founding fathers were skeptics. They were skeptical about Christ being God. Okay? That should that should bring up a big red flag in your mind. They were skeptical about the fact that Christ was God. They were skeptical about His miracles. Instead, they concentrated more on His teachings, His ethical teachings. Do good to others as, as you would have them do to you, those types of things. And so few believed, and few of these founding fathers actually believed in Christ's atoning death and resurrection. And that that we as rebellious sinners needed to turn to God in salvation. Um, so I would say that that most of them would believe in God, but I wouldn't say that there was necessarily a God of the Bible. Um, and and I and the key word there is most, okay? Because there were some founding fathers who were um, believers. And that's why you hear language throughout a lot of the early documents that don't speak specifically to God. They speak to the providence or the creator or nature's gods. And obviously you know that some of our founding fathers were deists, uh, Franklin being the most notable of those. He believed that while God existed, he actually didn't govern the world. He wasn't actually in control. He just kind of put it in motion and let it go. He wasn't... He was sitting in the background. And um, and so, in short, the God that the most, most of the founders believed in was a God who epitomized reason, virtue, order, and liberty. And uh, they didn't really think too, too much about His holiness, His love, His wrath, and His atonement that comes through Christ. As one scholar puts it, uh, Mark Knoll, who is a famous Christian historian, he says, most of the founders found in God what they most admired in humanity. So it's really uh, a lot of the things that they found in the Christian worldview they liked because it was a lot of the things that they, uh, they, they saw that it could work. And um, so, so thirdly, the, um, the founders hoped that the American people would have religious faith 
but they didn't force anyone to believe a certain type of religion. I actually think this is a good thing, but but uh, you don't find a whole lot of mentioning of God within the Constitution. Um, there's no coercion of belief, which I, I don't believe there should be. There, the, there was a freedom uh, that was given to Americans that they, they would have a, a right to, to seek out whichever religion they thought was best. We saw the trouble of trying to force religion, even a Christian religion, on people, right? In the 300s with Constantine, when Constantine was the emperor of Rome there, and he start, he wanted to force the religion uh, of of the Bible onto people. Over time, it started to corrupt, right? The church, the church and the state were, were one, and it started to corrupt all the doctrine within there, and... Um, and it led to, to, to greater and greater problems. So while we can see that there is a Christian worldview that, that underlies the founding of our country, in a strict sense, I would say that we cannot call the United States an officially Christian nation um, because it seems clear from the Scriptures that God only has a covenant with, with one group of people, particularly the Jews, Right? Um, not any particular nation state. We can't say that we are we have this special covenant with God if we follow these rules and we're going to be treated in a certain way. Well, the church in America actually came out of the Revo- revolution actually in, in rather poor shape. Uh, there were there was much division and damage because of the infighting within the churches, and many of the Americans in the 1790s seemed more interested in focusing on their country than on their faith. And by the 1790s, there were only about 5 to 10% of Americans who were actually members of churches. And that's not even to mention whether these are good or bad churches. So um, regular churches attendance dipped from a, a high of over 50% down to in the 40% range. So now there are new threats coming to Christianity, intellectual, political, and social developments. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to now. Any questions or comments on the founding of of our country? Yeah. No, I didn't. Do you want to expound on that? Yeah. No, I I haven't read that. No. Do you like natural theology? All right. Um, I'm using in the the understanding that that the scriptures are not at the center of how we understand. In other words, it's a branch of theology, right? And it's um, it can use it can borrow from the Christian worldview. And when I say Christian, I'm talking about what's revealed in the scriptures. But natural versus revealed that would be the difference. Natural is, I can look at creation, I can look at myself, I can look at problems in the world, and I can develop my understanding of God. Now, it's true that we can know, uh, everyone knows God from creation, from our conscience, but that's what's known as general revelation. That doesn't save anybody. So, in order for us to see the work of Christ, we can't see that from in the trees or the stars or anything like that, right? That has to come from the scriptures. So natural theology is not 
adequate in order to solve the greatest problem of humankind, which is the sin of the heart. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I haven't read that, but... All right. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Sandra. Religious freedom? Yeah, that we're not really Christians have to do this because Christ only was one um, nation. Mm-hmm. And that was the Israelites, the Jews, or his own people. Right. But then where do you put two churches in that? Can't well, we be a part of that? Yeah, um, but we are aliens in this world um, and and there's Christians all over the world that aren't a part of of anything close to what we have right that can still be Christians but because God doesn't work through one nation anymore like he did in the Old Testament uh, he will again through the Jewish nation in the millennium uh, will receive benefits as a result of what the Jews receive but but um, but that doesn't mean we can't be Christians obviously uh, when Christ died, he he um, he opened up blessings to all the Gentiles, but not specifically through one country. It doesn't have to come through one country anymore. Um, so, but but if you wanted to say, okay, the majority, let's take a poll and see how many people in our country are Christian or something like that, then then you'd have that's the way you'd have to define Christian nation. But um, I'm saying based on the way that it was founded um, that that actually there was some some poor theology there was some anti god theology i mean they they may have wanted to include God in it, but ultimately um, but ultimately we we don't have to we don't have to fear because we can actually be a part of any nation and still be a child of God, part of his future kingdom um so. I was just a little confused because the Israelites are called Jews, and we are also called Jews. So that's why it's not the same. Yeah, but even, yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other uh, thoughts? Jared. How do you mean? I would agree with that, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's 
see, I, I don't see where you're going, but I understand what you're saying. Um, right, right. Yes, that is helpful, actually, because, right, it, just because we are Americans doesn't mean that we're going to see, receive Christian benefits. The, receive, the, the reason we, we receive the blessings that we do through God, from God through Christ is because we're Christians, whether we're Canadian or Mexican or African or whatever we are. Yeah, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. So that's, that's helpful. Thank you. All right, social and intellectual changes. The French Revolution, um, there the the late 18th century, or the the latter part of the 18th century, both united and symbolized the change in the age of reason. Um, And what was happening is during this Enlightenment period, people were seeking to elevate human reason over divine revelation. Okay, we saw that. In, in the natural theology there. They're trying to, to elevate human reason over divine revelation. And, um, and while this enlightenment certainly influ- influenced many of the American founders, they still maintained a lot of solid principles like the fallibility of humans. That's a good thing to, to recognize that. And the dependence that we need upon God. But this was not the way it was with the French revolutionaries. They were trying to exterminate religion and and make man as some sort of a god, small g. <clears throat> and um, and as a result, thousands of people died at the guillotine because they they defected or did not agree with France's uh, position. And this created a decisive turning point in history, as one scholar puts it: the revolution marked the end of Christendom and the end of that lengthy period of European history when the interests of church and society were thought to be the same and where it was almost universally assumed that Christian spiritual realities were more fundamental than the realities of the temporal world. So with the onset of the French Revolution, that time was past where you had this, this focus on Christian, a Christian worldview, a desire to please God, a desire to understand the Scriptures right. And this also led to this higher criticism. Higher criticism sought to just look at the Bible like a historical text, like we would look at any other um, historical document, and we treat it like that and try to um, we try to critique it based on whether or not it was accurate. But but obviously we understand that we need to um, to take it as truth because it's God God's inspired word. It doesn't mean that it's uh, we should never, you know, seek to understand where it came from or, or anything like that. But we do need to to recognize that there is an inspired word of God, and it should not be treated like just any other document. In science, Charles Darwin uh, published Origin of Species in 1859, and obviously, you know, what he did he challenged the belief that or the, the truth that uh, the, the world was created by God. And um, in social philosophy, you had Karl Marx, who Karl Marx, who dismissed religion as a mere fiction, and he invented a, a an upper class to try to control the working class. And um, he believed that economic cycles governed history, not God. 
that um, that the social change is what was needed, not spiritual change. And so sadly, some professing Christians responded by surrendering great areas of faith. You have people who are thinking about the Scriptures and and trying to be committed to the Scriptures, but then as this human reason starts to arise around them, they start to give in. For example, a, a German theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher from the late 18th century, um, he, he, um, he said that Christian doc- doctrines were not rational. So he's basically saying that um, you go to the Scriptures and there's no rationality behind it. So human reason now is what interprets the Scriptures rather than the Scriptures, the scriptures interpreting our human reason. For him, Schleiermacher, the main thing that he was concerned about was feeling. He wanted to to uh, he felt that the the way to faith is is through feeling, and uh, we still have some of that in our churches today, with an emphasis on emotion and experience over the knowledge of God. Um, in other words, someone could say something like, "Well, I know this is true because I felt this way when it happened." Okay, like I had some sort of a spiritual experience. I saw Jesus Christ on the road or something like that. Well. Actually, that that is not um, that is not a good way to to interpret what's going on in life. We, we actually should have the scriptures interpret our experience. Okay? Was my experience from God? Um, does God speak to people in that way? For example, if if uh, a person said, I, "I saw a vision of Christ. I, I saw him. He spoke to me." Um, should we should we put value? Should we put um, substance in what they, they they experienced or should we look to the scriptures and say do people receive special revelation from god today apart from the word and i hope you would answer in the negative they do not and so we have to take the scriptures and say well that that experience must not be uh, a valid experience what was happening during this time is the exact opposite the experience was governing what the truth of scripture was saying we always have to submit to the scriptures another response to the enlightenment came from a danish philosopher his name was soren kierkegaard and he grew troubled over the rationalistic philosophy he held to a radical free will and that one a person in order to come to Christ could could go on this search on their own and they could find meaning for themselves. And he came up with this idea that each person needed to take a leap of faith towards God. And um, and his leap of faith seemed to have no basis in objective truth. And obviously, uh, we should recognize that Ephesians 2 says that we can't actually take a leap of faith in the sense that he was talking about it because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It wasn't that we were on the edge and we needed to jump over to God. It was we were laying down dead. We needed someone to impart life to us. That's what regeneration is. It's the impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead before we come to Christ. So this leap of faith, as he thought of it, was not valid either. Well, there are a number of um, positive things we could say about this time. There is a man by the name of John Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister who is uh, also the president of Princeton Seminary and the only 
pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence. He came from Scotland, and um, he wanted to enforce the idea of truth over reason, that truth uh, trumps reason. That When he's talking about truth, he means truth here. And, and the way that he saw that was the way that I think the Scriptures teach, and that is that from creation we can receive general truth about God, that He exists, that He is a judge, that there is sin, that we are offensive to Him. We can understand those basic truths about God. But he said, uh, Witherspoon said, that in order for you to understand the specifics, the special revealed Word from God, you need to go to the Scriptures. And um, and if you want to be saved, you can't be saved just by looking at the, the stars or the trees. In the 19th century, you had um, uh, at Princeton Seminary uh, two uh, great theologians, Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge. And um, Hodge saw clearly nothing less than the very supremacy of God that was at stake at the, in these theologies. Here's what he says. I think you have, yeah, you have a partial quote there on the bottom of your handout. He says, From an early per- period in the history of the church, there have been two great systems of doctrine in perpetual conflict. The one begins with God, the other with man. The one has for its objects, object the vindication of the divine supremacy and sovereignty in the salvation of men. The other has for it its characteristic aim, the assertion of the rights of human nature. The latter is characteristically rational. So he's saying there's two ways that you can approach theology. You can do it from the position of God. God is and God has spoken. And that's the very beginning of theology. God is and God has spoken. Or you can do it from the position of man, exalting human nature over what God has revealed. And he's saying that is actually very rational and and invalid. It seeks to explain, he goes on, everything has to be intelligible to the speculative understanding. The former, that is, the position of God, is confessedly confessedly mysterious. The Apostle Paul pronounces the judgment of God to be unsearchable and, and his ways past finding out. The whole tendency of the New Testament is to exalt God and to humble men. It does not make the latter feel that he is the great end of all things and that he is he has his destiny in his hands god himself is the end of all his works both in creation and redemption and i know that's a lot of 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 uh, theological talk there but that if 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 you're able to understand what is being said there it's very profound and helpful that that we are not the end of what we do that god is both the beginning and the end so what what he does for us in salvation is all for his purposes. It's it's to bring glory to himself, not to us. And if we begin if we if we get if we start at the very beginning with man, then we're always going to end up with with problems. But we if we start and end with God, then then we won't. And the way that we do that, according to Hodge, is to to look at the scriptures. It will be mysterious at times. It will be hard to understand, as he says, but but that doesn't change the fact that, that God has spoken. God is and that He has spoken. Well, from 1795 to the first decades of the 1800s, he had the Second Great Awakening. And it, that started under 
Timothy Dwight, and he was primarily responsible for the Second Great Awakening. He was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards and president of Yale Seminary. And he was troubled by the fact that the students at Yale Seminary were not concerned about spiritual things. Um, and so he re- worked to restore the truth of the Bible. He recognized that if we're going to get people back to where they need to be with regard to their relationship with God and Christ, they need to have a proper understanding of the Scriptures. And so he worked for four years at a time. He would circle through the, cycle through these sermons with regard to the basic doctrines of faith. And he would spend time one-on-one with many of the students talking to them about the doctrines of the Scripture. And by 1802, 75 of the 225 students were converted at Yale. Um, and, but this also took place in, uh, in some of the towns and villages like Cane Ridge, Kentucky. There, is a, uh, there were some camp meetings that were held in 1801 where about 25,000 people came to hear preachers proclaim the good news. Unfortunately, it, it went a little bit too far. There were lots of, uh, there's lo- lots of um, experiential type things that were added on to these types of services like bodily convulsions, um, laughing, hysterical noises, and one thing that they call the barking exercise, which they, they would encourage people to bark uh, like a dog at the demons and at the devil and bark them up a tree is what they're trying to do. Um, but uh, obviously we understand, uh, even as we'll talk about this morning in the service, that uh, the, uh, the demons are much stronger than we are, and that's our responsibility as Christians is not to go after demons, go after the devil, attack him, but we are to stand firm, Ephesians 6 says. Uh, we're going to be onslaught, we're, we're going to be attacked with this onslaught of Satan and his demons trying to, to get us to fall, and our main job is to just stand firm, not to, to go on a counterattack of any way. Um, one of the problems, I think, with the Second Great Awakening was the focus on the human free will, and this could lead to a much bigger debate, but I just want to point out specifically one man um, just in the remaining time. I'm going to skip, skip ahead here to Charles Finney. Charles Finney was one of the most prominent revivalists in America in the first half of the 1800s. And he did a lot for revivals. He believed that evangelism and social reform were were connected. And so he worked hard to focus on uh, promoting temperance, caring for the poor, handicapped, and promoting education. And so uh, he he worked hard, even in his revivals, to try to get Americans to, 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 to help out uh, other people in a just and equitable way. And so we could um, we could commend him for that. But he had a low view of the sin of sin in the cross, and this is why I say this this is a problem. He had a low view of sin in the cross. He he believed that that we <clears throat> individually could freely choose uh, God wholly on our own, <clears throat> and that Christ's death was not for the purpose of paying for our sins, but simply showing us an example of His love. So Christ didn't have to die in His mind. And um, this is this is one of the men that um, that caused really some some changes in the way that church was done over the years. In fact, the most sketchy of his practices was known as the anxious bench. The anxious bench. It was a chair at the front of the service or the front of the stage, where he would sit a person in it and manipul- ma- manipulate them 
to the point where they would make a, 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 a decision to convert. And so it seemed as if his focus was more on a, uh, that salvation came from man and not from God. And by the way, this is what led to what many churches still do today with these altar calls. Started with the anxious bench, where he would sit up, sit a person up there, and and keep pressing on them until they would be manipulated. And I say that in a pejorative way, purposely, he, they would be manipulated into making a decision. And the proof in the pudding is is whether or not these people stick. Okay, if God's going to do a change in salvation. Uh, then, then there's going to be a change in their life and they will be added to churches and be contributing parts of local churches. But that uh, generally was not the case with them. Now, there are some, obviously, may, probably many, I would say, that came to Christ under his ministry. But, but it actually, I think, did more harm. Um, uh, it did much harm to the cause of Christ because it, it put the focus back on man and and our responsibility or our our uh, ability to be able to save ourselves is what what it led to. And so there were some errors and excesses during this time, but but overall um, churches were growing, and um, there were faithful pastors and itinerant evangelists who worked hard to preach and teach. So the face of Christianity in America was changing. Um, started from people coming across from England to try to be able to have religious freedom and it um, led to a part where it used to be uh, primarily made up of Anglicans and Congregationalists. Now at this time in history at the early 18th century, late 18th century, uh, early 19th century, it was made up of three primary denominations, the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians. So next week we're going to look at that middle one there, the Baptist, which will give us a little bit more detail on and how we got to where we are now. And uh, just to kind of summarize, let me go have you go back to the front of your handout, that verse that I printed on there for you. <clears throat> I think this is an adequate um, verse, a helpful verse for what we've been talking about, because this is really where it comes down to. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in Him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, you want to separate true believers from unbelievers. It is that last phrase in that verse. Do they believe that all deity, or, or that, that in Christ all deity dwells in bodily form? Because First John talks about over and over again, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, then you are not of God. Don't tell me how much you love God, you know God, you're, you're working to serve God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in God. Okay? And when I say Jesus, not that He was a historical figure, but that He was God and that His death was sufficient for our life. It was necessary. All right. Any uh, final thoughts or questions, Bill? Yeah. I'm not sure I understood every word you said about what he was teaching, but it sounded like he began to bring in liberalism there. Oh yeah, and you're going to see that at the beginning of the 1900s, it really start to take off. Um, but yeah, there there was, and it starts with the theology. It starts with a wrong understanding 
of ourselves. So, do you have a follow-up? Right, exactly. You can't end there. No. Right, and First John is very clear on that that very um, that very point. Um, let me just read for you First John four verses one through three. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have come out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Chapter 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. 1 John 5:10. The one who believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so these, we don't want to dismiss, we don't want to look at people say, well, overall, they believed in God. They had a, they had lots of Christian principles. That, that may be helpful, but that's not actually what's going to save anyone. Christian principles never saved anyone. It has to be uh, a belief in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. And if you don't believe that, if they don't believe that, then, uh, then there's condemnation. Trish? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. If you compare that to, you know, let's say an oppressive, authoritarian nation, you know that uh, there's definitely blessing that comes along with it. There's just natural, and I would I would attribute that to, um, you know, kind of like how Solomon looked at the world. He would look at the world and say, if you act in this sort of way, this type of thing is going to happen, generally speaking. Um, but, but there's no, like in the Proverbs, there's not a specific promise that we're going to get just because we operate in those sorts of ways. But there are going to be uh, greater benefits, I would, I would definitely agree. And so the fact that, that our founders adopted a lot of these Christian principles, like Ken Brown was saying this summer, you know, they, they borrowed from the Christian worldview. And when they do that, they can, they can receive all sorts of great benefits from that. Um, so, so, yeah, that is, that is helpful. Mark? The watchmaker, yeah. The, okay. It's trying to prove God, right? Right. Yeah. You get into philosophy. I mean, that started with back with Plato, even trying to say. Right. They have the unmoved mover, the uh, argument, the existence of God. That um, they they have these five or six main proofs that God exists, but we don't need proof God exists. 
the Scriptures say that He exists. Our heart says that they exist. And creation says that He exists. So, um, anyway, that's... Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's... Uh, I, I have heard of the watchmaker. Yeah. 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 So, I guess the uh, the main point we need to get from all this is that uh, the Scriptures are superior in all things where we need to go for our understanding of everything that's going on in our lives. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your your kindness to us in this country. We're thankful for our leadership, for our government that You've set up and, and um, thankful for the separation of powers. Thankful for the, that we have the opportunity to vote for different um, uh, officers, people in, in uh, places of government. Uh, we're thankful for how you accomplish your purpose even through wicked governments. We don't understand how all that works, but we do know that you are providentially in control of all things and that that no one can do anything apart from your plan. We pray that you'd help us to find out what what pleases you, what is your desire, and that we would do it and not from our own uh, human tradition or deceptive philosophy like we read in Colossians, but that we would do it from Your Word and recognize that Jesus Christ is the center of what we believe. Thank You now for this time now. Help us in the service to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.